Well, thank you, Pastor. And we're glad to be here with you all. We are from Texas. And actually, we were up here to uh, film uh, our, I think, last animal DVD on animals of Alaska. Uh, have any of you heard of Buddy Davis? Buddy Davis? Oh, a lot of you. Well, we scheduled it up here because Buddy's been up here many times to do uh, dinosaur fossil digs in Glendive. And so we wanted to have Buddy uh, on the video. And we've been wanting to do that a long time. And then uh, we got up here. And on the first night, uh, before we went out to do filming, we had a service. And Buddy sang some special music and started to not feel so good and had a heart attack. And so they uh, had to care flight him into Bismarck. And then uh, he's still there, right? And they did a some major surgery today, and he came through it okay uh, on his heart. And so pray for Buddy. Uh, usually the first 48 hours are the most crucial. And if someone's like going to throw a blood clot or something, that, that's usually when it happens after open heart surgery. So just pray for Buddy and, and Kay that they'll do fine and he won't catch any hospital diseases or anything. So we had to kind of change the plan. We still got the film. and. Otis Klein, the director there of the museum in Glendive. Have any of you been over there to the Glendive <laughs> Dinosaur Fossil Museum? Oh, I'd encourage you. It is, it's a wonderful museum. And they have some huge dinosaur fossils. And we got to go out. Matter of fact, the week before last, uh, uh, where they go to do their fossils, they dug up a big triceratops head. Okay? Just right out there in Montana near Glendive. And so uh, there was a big flood came across here back there some time ago. And uh, we think we know what flood that was. So I think I'd like to read just a little devotional uh, out of uh, these, one of these books, Letting God Create Your Day, because I really do like these little books. And um, this one is called Evolution May Be the Victim of Spider's Webs. And then he always, it's just one page. By the way, these books are good to teach children who can read, as early as they can read, how to teach a little lesson. Because it's just one page, and they can just leaf through the book and find something that they find interesting. Here's one, eating that can result in starvation. I think we've been on that kind of diet. Here's one, get a younger brain. Uh, patterns of design, Egyptian discoveries support the Bible, air-conditioned dinosaurs, noisy ants, and uh, every page is something. So we've got one here. Evolution may be the victim of spiders' webs. And then you have a little scripture, then you'll talk about it, then he has a little prayer, and then usually his bibliography. Now, if I talk like this, can you all hear me? I'm glad, because I don't know if I can talk a lot louder, so that'll work then. Good. Uh, this one is, he takes his scripture from Job chapter 8, verses 13 and 14. It says this, So are the paths of all that forget God, that's right, and the hypocrite's hope shall perish, whose hope shall be cut off, and whose trust shall be a spider's web. That's Job chapter 8. So then he says this, for over a century, scientists have wondered about the embellishments that at least 78 species of spiders weave into their webs. By the way, if you know spiders, then you'll see the web and you'll know what spider it is. Because they all, each species of spider has its own characteristic web. Uh, so then he goes on. The extra bars and X's seem to have no obvious purpose. Some have suggested they might be hiding spots, sun shields, bird warnings, or even insect lures. Now, a researcher at University of Kyoto may have discovered the purpose of these designs. If he's right, evolutionary theory may be a victim of spider webs. The Asian spider 
this researcher studied builds two different types of webs. When it's well fed, the spider adds silk bands along the web spokes. However, when the spider is hungry, it arranges the bands so that they spiral toward the center of the web. After testing the tension in both web types, he discovered that the webs with the spiral bands are much more sensitive to even the smallest insect than the banded webs. In other words, the hungry spider is looking for any insect it might eat. The full spider is only interested in the larger insects. The question is then, how could mindless evolution give these spiders the knowledge of structural engineering needed to create these designs? In addition, according to the evolutionary tree for spiders, this knowledge would have had to have evolved at least nine different times. A much more logical and straightforward explanation is the Creator gave spiders this knowledge when He made them. And then He has a little prayer. Lord, help me to do all things excellently as You have, as you have done. And then his, his bibliography from this is a little article out of Science News called Hungry Spiders Tune-Up Web Jiggliness. <coughs> Excuse me. Well, anyway, I, I find those things interesting. I thought, <coughs> excuse me, <clears throat> well, at least I don't have a mic hooked on. <laughs> it's hard to cough and talk into a mic at the same time. Any of you want me to gargle? <clears throat> no? All right. <clears throat> a little bit of personal testimony. My family's with me, my wife, Jenity, and my firstborn, Taryn, and my secondborn, Mirren. And there was no thirdborn. So that's where we are, and that's where we remain. And Jenny and I are working on 49 years of marriage. Uh, and I'll share a little bit about that. Yeah, they said it would never last. <laughs> anyway, we're still here. A uh, little bit of my testimony. I was raised in the church, but I was not a Christian. Uh, I was actually an independent Baptist church in Pennsylvania. <laughs> And I decided I didn't want any part of that uh, because of how I saw my parents treat each other. And they were always yelling at each other, and they were yelling things they shouldn't, and, uh, and said they were Christians. And I decided, you know what? They claim they have this powerful God, and they can't even seem to get along. And so I decided I, wasn't, I didn't want any part of that. So I went off to college, took a course in organic evolution. I became an evolutionist. Then I went off to dental school, and by the time I got out of dental school, 1966, that's the height of the Vietnam War, that is the hippie generation. So I am the hippie generation, converted. And uh, so by the time I got out of dental school, uh, I was looking into Zen Buddhism, because that was popular back then with the New Agers. It's coming back, by the way. I was an evolutionist, and I was an agnostic. Now, an atheist says what? There is no God. An agnostic says, I don't know. Maybe there's a God, maybe there's not a God. I just don't know. So that's what I was after being raised in the church. Okay? My mom had me in church every time it was open when I was growing up. Praise God, she did. Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, every other Saturday night, I was in church. And uh, praise God, I fought my mom the whole way. Okay, But praise God, she stuck with it. Alright, so I went into the Air Force <clears throat> in 1968. I was the dentist, no, 66. I was the dentist for President Johnson's flight cruise, Air Force One presidential fleet from 66 to 68, and a total pagan who had been raised in the church. And so I decided to say a prayer to the God of the Bible. Now, I don't know if he's there. I'm agnostic. So I'm sitting in the officer's club, Shepherd Air Force Base, Wichita Falls, Texas. I'm drinking a whiskey and 7-Up. And I just said, okay, God, if you're up there, you have two choices. 
You can either show me the girl I'm going to marry, or you're going to see the wildest Air Force officer you've ever seen. And I thought, whew, nobody heard that. I'm going out and live it up. So I walked off the base, walked into the motel where the military had put me, and that's when I met my wife. And I was only a, she was only a lieutenant, and I was a captain. And we're both in basic training. And we were both naive enough to think she would have to follow orders. So after making sure she, she saluted me, I ordered her to go out with me. So we went out the next night, and I told her I was going to marry her. Now, you young guys, not a good idea at all, okay? At least get to know their last name. <laughs> so I said I was going to marry her, and I knew I was. She thought I was crazy, but I knew I was. And I used to say, you know what? I think that was an answered prayer. So I got to Washington, D.C., walked in the first church I came to. On the way out, the pastor shook my hand. He said, uh, Captain, is there anything I could do that would help you spiritually? I said, well, anything you could do would help me spiritually. I'm zero. And I was. I had never read the Bible. By the way, the average Christian has never read the Bible all the way through, according to the Barna Report. Only about 5% of people who call themselves Christians have ever read the Bible all the way through, even one time in their entire life. So I hope, I hope you're consistently reading through the Bible. We homeschooled our girls. We started in 1982, and uh, we read through it about 10 times as they, before they went off to college. And now we're reading again. And right now we're in Isaiah. And so, I hope you're reading the Bible. So he just asked me to read the Bible. So we read Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, not all on the same morning. And we got down to John chapter 3, verse 16. Does anybody know that verse? John 3, 16? What does that say? For God... Good, good. It was the first phrase got my attention. I probably heard that verse a thousand times growing up. And all of a sudden, it said, For God so loved the world. Well, I was part of the world. I loved the world. I loved the things of the world. And it's like God was saying to me, Hey, Joe, I love you. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, his name is Jesus, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Got down on my knees with a fellow named Charlie Warford, and I asked the Lord Jesus to forgive my sin, to come into my life, make me the kind of person he wanted me to be. I became a Christian, 27 years old, and I'd been in church the whole time I was growing up. I mean, it's possible one of you young people could not be a true Christian. But anyway, so I was 27. I immediately went from being an agnostic Zen Buddhist evolutionist to being a theistic evolutionist. Now I had God, but I still had my Big Bang and my billions of years, and there never could have been a flood that covered the whole earth. That's so silly. That's what I believe, okay? So now I'm a Christian evolutionist. Well, ultimately, uh, Went into dental practice down at the Manned Spacecraft Center in Houston and got offered a job at, as a professor of dentistry, Baylor College of Dentistry, and I gave my first lecture on the evolution of the tooth from fish scales. And I can't believe I believed that. But that's what I taught. Now here I am. I'm this cocky rookie professor, and this is my very first lecture. And I talked. I think wonderfully about how these scales moved into the mouth and became teeth. That's ridiculous, okay? Uh, you know, there is no relationship at all between scales and teeth, whether you look at it embryologically, physiologically, morphologically, functionally, anatomically, zero. That's what they're still teaching in college. You go to college, that's what you're going to learn. Fish scales became teeth. So, Two of my students challenged me after class. Now, they did it politely. This is my first lecture, and I'm being challenged by my students. 
Who do they think they are? Okay? So, they said, Dr. Martin, we believe that the universe is about 6,000 years old. And there was a flood covered the whole earth about 44, 4,500 years ago. Would you be willing to study creation science with us? I didn't even have to pray about it. Of course I'd love to do that. Now, what am I thinking? These guys are back in the Stone Ages. I mean, everybody knows the scientists have proven evolution. They've proven the billions of years. I'm going to have to set these guys straight. One of them, by the way, had two PhD degrees. I don't know what he was doing in dental school, all right? So I said, okay, I'll study. Well, they asked me, I'm reading my Bible. I'm reading my Bible, and they asked me to study the assumptions, the guesses behind evolution. I didn't think there were any. I thought it was a proven fact. Well, I didn't know how to spot the guesses in the scientific literature. Now, you, know, you need to know how to do that. Because once you know the right words to look for, then they can't bamboozle you, okay? Now, what kind of words are you supposed to look for? Well, words like, we think, perhaps, this suggests, maybe, this is probably, uh, we believe this, there's consensus about this. That's what they don't know. And when you read the evolutionary scientific literature, it is full of those kind of words. And I began to realize, you know what? Their assumptions aren't valid. They aren't true. They're just making this whole thing up. And then they asked me to study some animals. And the first one we studied together was a bombardier beetle. That was uh, probably in about probably somewhere around January of 1972. And so we studied this little bug. Some of you probably know about it, the bombardier beetle. How many of you know about the bombardier beetle? How many don't know about the bombardier beetle? Does everybody know about it? You don't know about a bombardier beetle. What? You don't know about a bombardier beetle. By the way, that means you're with everybody else in the whole wide world except a few here, okay? Nobody knows about a bombardier beetle. Why? Because that little bug isn't going to evolve. And if evolution is true, well, they can't put that bug in the textbooks because there's no way it could evolve. Because it mixes chemicals that have such a violent reaction, it's like an explosion. And the first time it ever mixes up those chemicals, it's going to go boom and splatter itself all over everyone. Well, that's the end of the evolution of the bombardier beetle. But we still have not because God made it with all of its parts. Now, there's a name for that. This is our first big word tonight, okay? It's called specified irreducible complexity. The bomb, this little bug has, it's very specific what it does. It's specified, it's irreducible. You know, you reduce down fractions and you get them reduced down and then you can't reduce them down anymore. That's as far as it'll go. Well, this little bug is irreducible. What's that mean? It needs all its parts or it blows itself up. It's got to have its like asbestos lined firing chamber. It's got to have its twin tail tubes to let the explosion go somewhere. It's got to have the right nervous system so it doesn't shoot mother. It only shoots its enemies. How does it know who its enemies are? See, all that information had to be built right into it. So, we study this little insect. Oh, by the way, uh, specified irreducible complexity. It's very complex. Very complex. Matter of fact, a friend of mine is an expert on bombardier beetles. His name is Dr. Andy McIntosh. He's in England, all right? And he has even invented a very special nozzle for aircraft based on the design of the nozzle on the gun turret of the bombardier beetle. Okay? In other words, God makes things so perfect that if we can just duplicate it, we've done a pretty good job. And a lot of times we can't duplicate it. All right, so I'm studying these animals, and I began to realize, you know what? God had to do this. There's got to be a creator. There has to be a designer. There isn't any way around it. And so I became a biblical creationist. The whole universe is about 6,000 years old. Eh, 
maybe, well, anyway, sometime we'll spend probably at least 45 minutes talking about evidences, scientific, observable, testable, reproducible, falsifiable evidences for a young universe. Things like the red blood cells and elastic tissue in dinosaur fossil bones that they found right over here in Montana. I'll show you pictures of it, as a matter of fact. <clears throat> All right, so I became a biblical creationist with a global flood a little while ago. And in 1982, I resigned my professorship uh, at Baylor and went to a place called Dallas Theological Seminary and got a degree in systematic theology. And uh, we were commissioned as missionaries to the United States of America. So, right here in the front row are two missionary kids, all right? Now, missionary young ladies. Matter of fact, they both have PhD degrees in history. I mean, we have a really good deal. We have a PhD cook. We have a PhD house cleaner. Uh, we have PhD unload the van. I mean, who else has such high quality help? For a very cheap price. <laughs> anyway, uh, they're a blessing, just a blessing. And uh, so, we will jump to, because I want to look at Romans chapter 1, because that's going to be our scripture for tonight. I think it's slide 114. Yes, now when I go on university campuses, I always put this up, and I will say, to the professors and the students, most of whom are atheists and evolutionists, I will say, does anybody object if we look at some world literature? Well, on a university campus, who's going to object to looking at world literature? Nobody. Nobody ever raised, I object. We're not going to look at world literature in here. So we go to Romans chapter 1. And then they boo. Oh, you tried to trick us. Boo. And, uh, well, no, is, is, is the Bible part of world literature? Of course it is. It's some of the oldest literature we have. Now, we know it's God's Word, but it's definitely part of world literature, okay? It says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. I hope you're not. For it's the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first. Are you praying for any Jewish people to come to know the Lord Jesus? Are you praying for Benjamin Netanyahu? Boy, I'll tell you what. Does he have pressure on him? Are you praying for the President of the United States of America, who has been making us actually an enemy of Israel with his policies? It's something. Pray for the Jews. And also to the Greek, by the way. Our God doesn't tell us specifically, pray about this. Almost, almost, when you think how big the Bible is, almost never. But he does say, Psalm 122, verse 6, Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. That's praying for Israel, by the way. When we have peace in Jerusalem, there will be no peace till the Prince of Peace comes, right? So, when we pray for the peace of Jerusalem, we're also praying for our Lord to come for us and a whole bunch of other stuff. But anyway, uh, for therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. And we do. And so does the wildest atheist. The wildest atheist believes by faith in something eternal. You either believe by faith in eternal God, or you believe by faith in eternal matter, or eternal mass, or eternal energy. That means everybody on planet Earth has a faith-based world view. We all live by faith in something eternal. Then God changes his tone. He says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Now, this is a certain kind of man. Men who hold the truth in unrighteousness, or they hold back truth, or they suppress truth. In other words, there, there are people who know something, but they aren't going to tell you about it. Uh, they know about Nudebronx, but they're not going to tell you about it, because there's no way they could evolve. Uh, they know about eye eyes. They're not going to tell you about it. No way they could evolve. Uh, they know about wettas, but they're not going to tell you about it because there's no way they could evolve. So they don't put it in the literature. Now, you can find out about it. Uh, but in any event, why do they hold this truth in unrighteousness? Well, it's because they're ungodly. 
And then look what it says. Because that which may be known of God is manifest in them. Oh, so they can know something about God. Yeah, for God has showed it unto them. How do he do that? For the invisible things of him, of God, from the creation of the world are clearly seen. What? If it's invisible, you can't see it. Is the scripture just a, not meaning anything here? He says we can see invisible things about God. Yeah, how? Well, it says, being understood by things that are made. Oh, that's the creation. So if we study what God has made, we can see invisible things about God. By the way, studying the creation is called general revelation. And then we have special or specific revelation, which is the written word of God. So God speaks through the creation. He speaks through his Bible. But the creation doesn't get you saved. It's the Lord Jesus Christ who is the creator who saves our soul. Uh, then it says, even as eternal power and Godhead. Well, we can see things about the Godhead when we study the creation. What's included in the Godhead? Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Um, there's one God, Christian God, but he is a trinity. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. That's one God. But it's three separate persons making one God. Well, how do you think about that? Well, God is telling us right here, study what I've made. It's all through my creation, this whole idea of a triunity. Okay, Genesis, we have one God, three persons. We have one universe. By the way, there's not parallel universes. According to the Bible, there's one universe. But it's made up of three things, time, space, and matter. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. Actually, heaven there is a dual noun in the Hebrew. Two. I think he's talking about atmospheric heaven and stellar heaven, where the stars are. He's not talking third heaven, because he's talking about his creation. Third heaven was already there. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, in the beginning, what is that? Time. God created the heavens. What's that? Space. And the earth, what's that? Matter. So we have one God, three persons. God says, look, study what I've made, and you can get a grasp of this one thing that's three, but it takes all three to make the one. So he makes one universe made up of three things, time, space, and matter. And then look at each one of those. In the beginning, what's that time? What is time? One thing but three, past, present, and future. God created the heavens. What's that? Space. What is that? One thing and three, width, depth, and height. And the earth, what's the earth? Matter, what is matter? One thing but three, solid, liquid, and gas. And then we have this thing called plasma. And one of you young people are gonna to have to get your PhD in nuclear physics and tell us what that is and where it fits within this scheme of things It's one thing but three. Well, you, what are you? Body, soul, and spirit. Uh, what's the atom, major parts? Proton, electron, neutron. And we just had dinner with a fellow named Jason Lyle here three weeks ago. And Jason is going to be writing some articles for Acts and Facts, the Institute for Creation Research magazine. And he was telling us the further down in you go into the atom, you're still finding groups of three. Gluons. They're made up of three-somethings. And then you get down further than that. All the way down. It's these things. It's one but three. Um, a tree. What's a tree? Root, trunk, leaves. I'm a dentist. What's a tooth? Dentist, cementum, enamel. Uh, music. What is music? Melody, harmony, rhythm. Is melody the same as harmony? No. Harmony the same as rhythm? No. Rhythm the same as melody? No. They're all different from each other, but it takes all three to make good music. Even though the younger generation has kind of forgotten that. <laughs> You've got to have more than just a drum, okay? Anyway. So God says, look, if you really want to get a grasp of this idea of a triunity, study what I've made. It's all through my creation. I gave a talk and an economist comes up. And this economist says, hey, there's all kinds of things like that in economics. And he started listing these economic concepts. And there's this one, and here's three things make it up. And there's this one. So all through the creation, God has built this one thing that's three. 
All right, so he finishes up by saying this. So they're without excuse. Why? Because they studied what God has made, and then they, they hold it back because they're unrighteous. So he says, because that, when they knew God, how? By studying what he made, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations. That was me almost half my life. Vain imagination called Big Bang Evolution. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. Changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like the corruptible man and the birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. Wherefore God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lust of their own hearts to dishonor their own bodies between themselves who changed the truth of God into a life. What kind of truth did we have so far in Romans? We have the gospel and we have the creation. They changed the truth of God into a life. Oh, you believe in Jesus? That's silly. I mean, he died. Gods don't die. What's the matter with you? He couldn't have been God. Uh, the gospel, change it into a lie. Evolution. You believe in creation? You think we've only been around about 6,000 years? Where did all these billions of things come from? Where did all these plants come from? It had to take, look at the rocks. It had to take billions of years. You're so silly. Try to get rid of the creation, try to get rid of Jesus. So they change the truth of God into a lie. They worship and serve the creature more than the creator who is blessed forever. All right, so let's look at one little bit of creation. And I kind of like to start with this one because I think it's amazing. The Brazil nut. And you know what Brazil nuts are. And they're sure good to eat if you can get them out of the shell. But the Brazil nuts form in the Brazil nut tree. And the Brazil nut tree is one of two trees that hold up the canopy in the Amazon rainforest. The Brazil nut tree and the Kapok tree, like to make life preservers, okay? These two trees are anywhere from 180 to 230 feet tall. Really big tall trees, not the tallest trees in the world. We got the tallest trees right here in the USA. Giant sequoia, giant redwood, okay? All right. So you have these trees, and the nuts form in like this pod. And the pod is about the size of a large coconut. It weighs up to five pounds. So you don't want to be under the tree if one of these lets loose from 180 feet up, okay? It's unfortunate, all right? So they break loose, they fall down, they hit the ground. That is so solid, it won't break open when it hits the ground. Well, then how, the, how are the nuts going to get out? That's the seeds for the next tree. How are they going to get out? Well, God made a little animal that likes to eat Brazil nuts. It's called an agouti. And the agouti will find those pods, chew down in there, get the nuts out. It'll eat some and bury some and forget where they are. And then that's going to be your next generation of trees. Down in Texas, we have pecan orchards, like miles of them. Down in Brazil, they decided, let's have some Brazil nut tree orchards. So they plant the trees, the trees grow, the trees get blossoms. No nuts. Why? Well, they discovered that the blossom on the Brazil nut tree the pollen is down in like a spiral tube, and it's sealed shut. It has a lid on it so that the pollen can't get out. The wind can't blow across it and pollinate it. They discovered there's only one insect that can pollinate the Brazil nut tree flower, and that's the Brazil nut long-tongued bee. And this bee has a very long tongue and a very strong jaw. And so what it does, it finds the flowers, it takes its strong jaw, opens the lid, sticks its tongue down in the spiral tube, gets the pollen, pulls the pollen out, and as it goes from flower to flower to flower, it pollinates the Brazil nut tree. And they figured that out. They went out in the jungle, they brought in the flowers, I mean the bees, and they got nuts for one year. Next year, no nuts. Why? Well, it took several more years for them to discover. In order for Mrs. B to invite Mr. B into the house so they can have baby bees, Mr. B has to go to a particular species of orchid. Only one 
orchid. He has to find that orchid, get the scent of that orchid on himself. I guess it's his cologne. And then Mrs. B will invite him in. That means in the jungle, you got to have the tree, you have to have the bee, you have to have the orchid, and you have to have the agouti. How would that evolve? They're all mutually dependent upon each other. It's called mutualism. So they have to have each other to stay alive. So you can't have a partially evolved Brazil nut bee, long tongue bee. It can't have a partially long tongue. It's still evolving to try to get long enough to reach the pollen down in there. It's dead. You, you have to have the flower with exactly the right aroma and the female bee who will only receive that particular aroma all those things have to be there. Boom. Just like that. Only God could do that. Now what did he say? If we study what he's made, we will either give him thanks and give him glory, or we will be reduced to vain imaginations. And that's what evolution is. It's a vain imagination. Well, it does have an enemy, the strangler fig. And the strangler fig will work its way up the tree. It takes oh, maybe 30 or 40 years, and it'll finally strangle the tree. These trees live to be five and 600 years old. And so after it strangles the tree, the tree dies, but that opens up a place in the canopy. And now the sun can get all the way down to the nuts that the agouti buried. And now here comes your, your new generation of trees. So God has it all worked out so that it all works really well. Um, I'm going to try and show a video clip, and we'll see if it works. And uh, I don't know if it will or not. We'll try it. And I want you to see a Lampsilis muscle, since I'm right here. How many of you know about the Lampsilis muscle? Oh, a few of you do. What did you learn that on Incredible Creatures? Oh, you did. Oh, okay. That was it. Uh, this little, yeah, this little muscle mimics, it puts its tissue up on top of its shell and mimics, I thought, just different types of minnows. And then we were at a big homeschool convention and this man comes up. And he is a, a research scientist with his field of study, the Lampsilis muscle. And there's four experts in the world on the Lampsilis muscle. And one of them was at a talk I gave. He comes up. He says, no, no, no. They mimic more than just minnows. They mimic insects and worms. It's almost like you name it, they can pretend to be whatever it is. So we'll show you this one, if it works. All right. And uh, now I got a new computer, and so I'm having trouble figuring it out. And then I get it going, and then this little thing that I snap on disappears. And then I can't stop it where I want to. All right, now, here we go. Now this, can you see it? Do we need to turn the lights off or on or up? Are we okay? If you can see it. All right, look at this. It can make itself look like spots, look like it has fins, it looks like it has an eyeball, and uh, that is the tissue of the muscle. Look at this. There it is. It wiggles like a minnow. Unbelievable. It's, how would it do that? Okay, now this particular one is a specialist, and it needs a bass. Now, there it is. It needs a bass. If a perch comes down and tries to take it, it'll pull its bait inside. Do you mean to tell me a little mussel can tell the difference between a perch and a bass? Yep. How do they do that? That's probably a PhD in marine biology for somebody, but they do. All right, so now the bass is going to come down, and it's going to say, boy, that looks like good lunch. I'm having my lunch. Well, the split second it goes to take that bait, it shoots its eggs and larvae up into the mouth of the bass, and they're going to go in there, and they're going to attach to the gills. Now, they don't kill the fish, but the fish doesn't like it, so... The fish is trying to get those things out of there. 
So he's sucking the water through as fast as he can. Now, you know how fast uh, a bass can take a bait. It's like, boom, it's got it. That muscle, the split second that bass goes to take that bait, that muscle has to open up and shoot its eggs and larvae up in there while the bass still has his mouth open. How would it do that, you see? Well, anyway, so they go in there. Now, here's a baby muscle. Oh, it's kind of pale. Uh, I think you can see it. I think I got a pointer here. And if my pointer works, I'll point it out, just in case. Right there. Can you see that? Would it help to just flip the lights for just a second? Is there a place to just flip them? Or can you flip one row at a time, or do they all go? That's good. That's good. Oh, yeah. We maybe can just leave it like that. All right. There it is right there. Now watch. Watch. Because it has a split second to grab a hold of those gills. And if it doesn't, it gets flushed out. It's dead. By the way, that little baby muscle is about as big as the sharp end of a pin. It is just a speck. So that means you got half a speck for one shell. Half a speck for the other shell, about a sixteenth of, of a speck for the muscle that opens and closes it, and then about a thirty-second of a speck, the brains. It knows what to do. And it's going to snap on. Okay, watch. Here we go. All right, if I can get this. Here we go. Whoop, there it is. All right, now da, 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 da. watch it. Here it goes. Bam. And it snaps on. By the way, this is incredible photography. We need Christian photographers who are also biologists and zoologists. And I just talked to a young man that wants to be a paleoentomologist, fossil insects, young Christian man. By the way, part of the pond, maybe you've got spotted minnows. I can be a spotted minnow, no big deal. Uh, maybe another part of the pond, you've got striped minnows. Oh, striped minnows. Okay, I can be a striped minnow, no big deal. What is happening? I mean, this is unbelievable. At least I think it is. Only God could do that. There's no way some sort of a mindless, chance, random, accidental, non-directed, non-purposeful process, no God, wouldn't matter how many millions of years you have. How are millions of years going to produce something like this? It's like the evolutionists say, well, give us enough time and anything can happen. So my daughter said the other day, give us enough time and my bed will make itself if evolution is true. No, it's, it's not going to make itself. Okay. Anyway, uh, that's the Lampcellus muscle. And uh, while I'm here, let's just do the cuttlefish. And the whole idea here is to show there's no way these things could evolve. Now, the cuttlefish, we were over in uh, Korea uh, a few years ago, and they all wanted to see the cuttlefish because they like to eat cuttlefish. And, uh, whoop, see that? If you don't catch it just exactly, it's gone. If any of you know what's going on here, let me know, okay? But it's got this little thing here, and if I don't catch it just right, it's gone. I used to be able to just click on the picture and turn it on and off. All right, here comes the cuttlefish. And they are supposed to be a primitive creature. They're in the family with squid and octopi. Now look, he's got an eyeball there like Batman. And uh, they can turn on the lights. Uh, now look, boom, boom, boom. He's doing that. He's not going through shade and, and light. He turns on the lights. And they do that to kind of hypnotize their prey. And they can turn themselves all kinds of different colors, as you can see there. Uh, they can make their skin lumpy or smooth. Uh, they have three different types of color-producing cells. And uh, uh, they are not a primitive animal. They can camouflage themselves in an instant. They just look at the ground, the, the seaweed, the sand, the rocks, and bump. And they look exactly like it. Same color. Oh, by the way, you can, you can uh, make one of these things angry. And if they get ticked off, 
they will turn bright red, their whole body, in an instant. Boom! And the whole body's bright red. I am ticked. Okay? And uh, also, if a male is courting a female, and another male happens to come in and swim in, that male that's courting the female, let's say here, here's your female, and the male's swimming around here trying to get her attention, and there's another male out here, he will turn half of his body that's toward the female, a color that the female likes, and the other half of his body with like a line right down the middle. This half, nice color for the female. This half, some other color that tells this other predator male over here, get out of here, get out of here. How would they do that? They did some experiments where they put black and white striped wallpaper on the back of a tank with cuttlefish. And the cuttlefish would swim up against the wallpaper, and here comes a black stripe and a white stripe, and a black stripe. And they'd swim up against the wallpaper, and then here comes the black stripe right through the cuttlefish, and on, white stripe, white. They turned themselves white, black, white, black, just like the wallpaper. And it's exactly lined up with the wallpaper. How do they do that? Okay? There's a lot we don't know. By the way, I forgot to let this keep running, because I want you to see it when it turns on the camouflage. Uh, oh, here we go, right here. Oh, oh, don't go away, don't go away. Where did it, there it is, there it is, all right. Now, uh, it looks down at the bottom, and it says, I, I need to hide, and I need to hide quickly. And so, it can turn its color, like tentacles, make it look like whatever's around it, uh, things sticking up on its body looking like little rocks and little things and there's the eye right there and it but it's in an instant it looks at its surroundings and then mimics its surroundings in an instant this is not a primitive creature only God could do that there's no doubt in my mind at all only God could do that now the pastor said I could go to 10 so we're going to keep going for just a little bit. And uh, let me see here. We better get down to some more introductory things here. I think it's about slide 153. It must be slide 154. But anyway, uh, if evolution is true, why don't we see this kind of a thing? I mean, the genes are out there for eagles. The genes are out there for St. Bernard's. Why don't we see them get mixed up out there? Because God made each thing after its own kind. So you're never going to see that. Uh, but anyway, some people say, well, you know what? I can have evolution and the Bible. The two don't conflict with each other. The Bible and evolution, they fit beautifully with each other. That would be progressive creationists, theistic evolutionists, gap theory, day-age theory, framework hypothesis idea. Well, evolution and the Bible, they all fit. Well, do they really? Let's just take a look at that. What does the Bible say there is a God? What is the whole reason for evolution? There is no God. All right, I better read you a quote. I don't know if I'll remember how to get back to this one, but I'm going to read you a quote. I think that's slide 39. Yeah, look at Richard Bozart. He's writing in the American Atheist magazine. He's an atheist. He says, Christianity has fought, still fights, and will fight science to the desperate end over evolution. We don't fight science. Christians invented every major branch of science. Whether it was Newton, Pasteur, Lister, Babbage, you name it, and the major branches of science were founded by Christians. Why? Because these men all believed that God was a God of order and regularity and predictability and symmetry and beauty and law. And so that should be expressed out through his creation. And so they looked at the part of creation that they studied and were experts in and they kept going deeper and deeper and deeper. Look what God did here. Look what God did here. And out comes these different branches of science. So we're not fighting science. 
But we do fight science falsely so-called and science based on wrong assumptions. So what's the whole reason for evolution? Get rid of Jesus, get rid of Genesis, and we're home free. So he says, because evolution destroys evolution, destroys utterly and finally the very reason Jesus' earthly life was supposedly made necessary. Get rid of Jesus, get rid of Genesis, destroy Adam and Eve in original sin, that's Genesis, and in the rubble, you'll find the sorry remains of the Son of God. He refused to capitalize it, so I did. If Jesus was not the Redeemer that died for our sins, and this is what evolution means, then Christianity is nothing, says Richard Bozar. Yep, he understands the issue. The average Christian doesn't understand the issue. That's why it's crucial for us to understand this issue. I'll show you one more. I think it's slide 55. Yeah, this is Richard Lewinton, Harvard professor, Harvard University. By the way, he is a Marxist, atheist, evolutionist, professor at Harvard University. And here's what he says. It's not that the methods and institutions of science somehow compel us to accept a material explanation of the phenomenal world. By the way, when he says material explanation, He's talking about evolution, all right? Evolution is called materialism. It's called evolutionism. It's called millions of years. Those are all synonyms for evolution. All right, so they compel us to accept the material explanation of the phenomenal world. All he's saying is there's nothing in science that proves there is no God. That's all he's saying with those big words. There's nothing in science that proves there is no God. And then he says this, on the contrary, oops, on the contrary to what? Well, there is a lot of science that proves there is a God. There is a designer. It's impossible it could be here all by itself, no matter how many millions of years you have. So on the contrary, we are forced by an a priori, that means an upfront adherence to material causes. Well, if there is no God, and that's where they start, then that's they have to decide, you know what? Something happened out there that we can be here without God. So, what do they do? It creates an apparatus of investigation and a set of concepts that produce material explanations. So, they got to do it. Matter explains everything. Matter is self-organizing. Matter is self-creating, okay? No matter how counterintuitive, no matter how it goes against the very science they study. In other words, they're studying science. The science is telling them, hey, there's a designer. And you know what they're saying? Um, I refuse to believe that. I'm not going to believe it. No matter how counterintuitive, no matter how mystifying to the uninitiated, moreover, that materialism is absolute. For we cannot allow a divine foot in the door. All right? So that's what they said. We can't let God in the door. Therefore, matter is all there is. And even though it goes against the very science we study, we're going to say, hey, we got here by accident. Matter just did it without God. Now, did I say 153? Yeah, here we go. All right. Now, God. The Bible says, evolution says, there is no God. That's the whole reason for it. The Bible says, Earth was here first. Evolution says, stars were here first. Okay, which do you believe? You say, I believe in theistic evolution. I believe in progressive creation. Do you believe stars were here first? Well, yeah, if you say you're a progressive creationist, that's what you say. God says it all started wet. Evolution says, no, 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 no. It all started dry. Why, those, that first generation stars as a result of the Big Bang. The Big Bang goes kaboom. Nothing goes kaboom. And produces helium and a lot of hydrogen. And that forms first generation stars. And then over millions of years, they start to blow up. And then that forms second generation stars. And here comes some of your elements. And then those stars blow up. And then here comes planet Earth. And planet Earth started as molten rock. And then it cooled down. And then comets and volcanoes produced the water on planet Earth. It started dry. No, 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 God says. It started wet. 
And our evolution says it started, it started dry. No, it didn't. God says light was here before the sun. First three days, no sun. Day four, God created the sun. Evolution says, oh, no, no, no. The sun had to be here to make the light. By the way, why would God do that? Why might God make light before he made the sun? Because each one of those first three days is half light and half dark. All right? So you have days that are half light and half dark. That means it was a source of light for those first three days. And either earth is turning in front of that source of light or that source of light is going around the earth. But each day is half light and half dark. All right? So why might God do that? I think it's because he knew people would worship the sun. And it's like God is saying, hey, don't worship the sun. Worship me. I don't even need the sun. I can make a light without the sun. I did it for the first three days of my creation week. <coughs> Worship me. All right. Then God says he made land plants first. Evolution says sea life was here first. God says he made birds on day five, reptiles on day six. Evolution says no, no, no. The reptiles were first and then came the birds. All right, let's think about that for just a minute. Let's take four characteristics of a reptile and four <laughs> characteristics of a bird. All right, a reptile, your average reptile. Dense bones, teeth, scales, cold blood. Your average bird, hollow bones, beaks, feathers, warm blood. Is there any such thing in the fossils or in living things of a partially dense bone, tooth beak, feathery, scaly, lukewarm blooded, reptile bird. Nothing, nothing in the fossils or in living things. Then how can they say that reptiles became birds? They don't have any evidence. Well, it's because they can't let a divine foot in the door. They make it up. It's in their mind. It has to have happened. Give it enough time, it, have, it has to have happened. No, God says he made the birds. And then the next day, he made the big beasts of the earth, the dinosaurs and things. All right, man made from dust, says the Bible. No, man came from the primates, says evolution. God says man sinned the cause of death. Romans 5.12, what does that mean? That means God made Adam to live forever. If Adam hadn't sinned, he'd still be here. God, I believe, made Adam to live forever. But Adam sinned. Now he has to die. That is the punishment. Well, now hang on a minute. If, if theistic evolution, let's say, or progressive creation are true, and there were all these things living and dying, living and dying, living and dying, and then over millions of years, you finally get up to one God says, okay, you're going to be Adam. And then God says to Adam, hey, Adam, if you eat of that tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you're going to die. What would Adam say? Hey, God, what's the big deal here? I was going to die anyway. Everything dies. You see, death began with Adam, and it spread to the entire creation. The whole creation is groaning for its redemption caused by the curse and Adam's sin. All right, so everything dies. Now, Jesus is the creator. Does anyone know in the New Testament where it tells us Jesus is the creator? John 1, Colossians 1, Hebrews 1. All right, three places. It clearly is talking about Jesus. So God the Father, in the power of the Holy Spirit, through the agency of Jesus, created everything. Now, what does that mean? That means the Creator is the Redeemer. The Creator is the Savior. Jesus is the Creator. Jesus is the Savior. Only the Creator would have the right and the authority to save his particular creature, which is us. So now Jesus steps into his creation 
He's going to do his miracles. He doesn't sin. He lives a perfect life. He can't die because sin is the punishment. The punishment of sin is death. Jesus didn't sin, so he can't die. But he did die. Why? Because he took our sin on himself at the cross. And now he has to die. But he didn't stay dead. So he came, he did his miracles to prove who he is. He died on the cross because he took our sin. And then he came up out of the tomb at the resurrection to prove he had overcome the death that was the consequence of Adam's sin. And now when we believe in him, we have eternal life because of what Jesus did. So that, what's that mean? That means you're either going to have two births and one death or you're going to have one birth and two deaths. If you have your physical birth and then you're born again, you put your trust in Jesus. It said being born again, John chapter 3. You're only going to have one death and that's your physical death. But if you only have one birth, you've never been born again. You've never received Jesus. That means you have one birth. You're going to have two deaths. You'll have your first death, your physical death, but then you're going to have what the Bible calls the second death, where you're cast into the lake of fire forever. So God says, I want everybody to have two births, so they'll only have one death, because it's not his will that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Second Peter chapter 3. Well, what does evolution say? No, no, no. Death was here long before man ever came on the scene. No, that is not true. All right, now, let's have a question or two. No questions. Good. No, does anybody have a question? Does anybody have something you'd like us to try and deal with uh, before I go home on Sunday? What? Oh, no? Yeah. Anybody have something you'd, you'd like us to be sure to touch on? Since this is the first night, that'll give me time to call somebody who might know the answer. <laughs> what do you want me to touch on before I go home on Sunday? Anything in particular? Nothing? Okay. If that is the case, then uh, I think we will stop by mentioning, let me see here, um, the camel. God made the camel for the desert. Did you know a camel doesn't have any fat under its skin? Because if it had fat under its skin, it would boil in the, in the heat of the, of the desert and it would be dead. So God took all the fat and put it in the hump. So the hump of the camel is fat. But if the camel is in the desert and doesn't get anything to eat or drink for up to 10 days, it metabolizes its hump. It eats its hump. And for every gram of fat in the hump, it generates a gram and a half of water. So that if you see a camel with a slumped hump, that means it's hungry and thirsty. And they can drink up to 28 gallons of water in a half an hour. No, 10 minutes. They can 28 gallons. And uh, if you tried to drink, I don't know, two gallons, you'd probably be dead, okay? So they can suck it in. It goes into their blood. It goes everywhere in their body. And then their body sorts it out over, over a few hours, okay? So when they have a water supply, just and that's all. And then they go over here and their body sorts it all out for them. Uh, they have special flaps for their eyes, for their ears, for their nose. So if they get in a sandstorm, uh, they can still see, they can still hear, they can still smell, but they don't get choked up by the sand. They don't go blind uh, by the sand. Their feet are like huge snowshoes when they spread out. So they're much better on sand than, let's say, a horse. And yet in the desert, they have horses, and Arabian stallions and everything. But the camel 
is much more designed for the desert than the horse. And then they have these big, like, calluses. And they have some big calluses right here on their, on their tummy and, so, and on their elbows. And when they lie down on the hot sand, the callus touches the sand instead of their, their tummy with their organs so they don't fry their tummy. Uh, the callus takes the heat. Well, see, every, <clears throat> every single aspect of a camel is designed for the desert. God made them that way. And uh, I've never had camel milk, but they, they, they like to drink camel milk. But they, they tell me it's kind of fizzy. It's a fizzy. Has anybody ever had camel milk? You have? You like it? Uh-huh. That's good. And uh, so, uh, with all that in mind, I think I'm going to turn it to the pastor, and uh, we'll uh, come back tomorrow night. And I want to share, I want to share evidences for a young universe. I'd also like to share some concepts of using creation for evangelism. Uh, we want every family to have a free copy of my book. They're back there on the table on that far end. The Evolution of a Creationist. Uh, please get a copy. It's our gift to you. And uh, probably almost anything else you talk to my family about, they just will say, well, here, why don't you just take it? <laughs> but anyway, we, we want you to have whatever you, you can help there. And uh, so I want to turn it to the pastor. And I want to thank you for having us. And this is our last lap here of uh, several weeks here on the road. And we head back to Dallas on Sunday. And it says it's going to be like 101 in Dallas. And nobody's home. And our electricity went off for three hours the day before yesterday. Our neighbor called. And we don't know if the air conditioner went back on. Sometimes it doesn't when the electricity is off. So I appreciate prayer that we don't go back. And our uh, closet that has all our vitamin supplements isn't 120 degrees. <laughs> that would be nice. So we appreciate it if you pray. Everything's still working. And don't forget to pray for Buddy Bates. He had his surgery this morning. And he came through it. So pray he'll come, come along fine. Okay, Pastor.